Now, over the past four weeks, we've discussed the first four solas of the Protestant Reformation, which began 500 years ago this month. about now? Can you hear me? You can hear me or else you wouldn't have said no. How about that? We'll make this work. Again, over the past four weeks, we've discussed these four solas of the Protestant Reformation, which began 500 years ago this October. And these core convictions arose directly from the Reformation and have shaped countless Protestant churches and countless individual believers ever since. As we've discussed, sola is Latin for alone. But these four solas, these four convictions, are not alone. They hold one another up, and they build upon one another. The four we've discussed so far are sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, and sola scriptura, scripture alone. And as we close today, we'll examine number five, sola deo gloria, God's glory alone. But as we looked at these, let's begin with faith alone. Martin Luther's life changed forever when he read the book of Romans in a new light. He understood that the righteous shall live by faith, like Abraham. The righteous shall not live by works. His point is that our works do not save us. They cannot improve our standing before God. Our works of charity or piety or attempts at holiness are like filthy rags when we present them to God himself. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith. Like Abraham, we are declared righteous. By trusting in God's promises. Now, like Abraham, our works certainly do matter. They put our faith on display. But make no mistake, our faith comes first. But then, unlike Abraham, we don't trust that someday in the future, God will bless all nations of the world. But we're not really sure how. We believe that God already has blessed all nations of the world through sending his son, Jesus Christ. That is what we believe. Christ is where we place our faith. And then, of course, grace alone. Everything good we have in this life, everything good we have in eternity is a gift of God's grace. His unmerited favor to sinners. We were created by God's grace. The world keeps spinning by God's grace. We were redeemed from our sin by God's grace. And we're grown and matured in faith and obedience by God's grace. We deserve nothing. And yet God has given us everything. We deserve the worst. Judgment. Separation. And yet God has given us the best. An inheritance and reconciliation. And with Solus Christus, we talked about how Jesus is our great high priest, fully God, fully man, sinless, 
the one who offered himself as a sufficient sacrifice for sin on our behalf. He's the only mediator capable of bridging the separation between God and man and reconciling us to our creator. No other human, whether it be priest or prophet, king or pope, was up to that task. We are like that criminal crucified next to Jesus. We have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table. And yet, we have Christ. And then sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture is our primary authority, both collectively and individually. It alone takes precedence over every other authority in this life, because it alone is perfect. And it alone is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thus, the church is called to preach scripture. Every Christian is called to read it and submit to it. And this isn't because God is on some kind of unwarranted power trip. We read and submit to scripture because God knows what is best for us. Because God knows what is best for our world. There are all kinds of illegitimate and abusive authorities in our world today. But God is the legitimate and the joyful and the grace-giving authority who we obey. But today we shift to that fifth and final sola, sola deo gloria, God's glory alone. Now compared to the first four, this one might seem somewhat vague. The first four are much more specific in terms of what they address, but this one seems a bit more open-ended. But if you believe the first four, it's not hard to see how you get to number five. Because if the first four are true, how can you not believe that God alone deserves all the glory? Theologian Kevin Van Hooser, who I've quoted more than once over the past few weeks, says this. No one at the time of the Reformation was explicitly denying the rightness of glorifying God alone. However, the intent of the other four solas was to ensure that all the glory for salvation and true interpretation alike be given to God alone. In other words, there weren't people running around in Martin Luther's day saying, hey, you know what? I think we should give God a little bit less glory. That wasn't the case. But there were things happening in the church. There were teachings and practices that maybe subtly and maybe even unintentionally, we're taking glory away from God and putting it on man instead. But when we open Scripture, like the good Protestants that we are, we see God's glory emphasized all over the place. We'd be here all day if we attempted to read every single passage that speaks of God's glory. Take, for example, the book of Exodus. Moses removes his shoes in God's holy and glorious presence at the burning bush. God's holiness and God's glory very much go hand in hand. God's glory guides the people through the wilderness in the form of a cloud during the day and fire at night. God's glory fills the tabernacle, the portable temple constructed for his people. And even when they have a permanent temple built by Solomon, The glory of God fills that temple, too. We see the glory of God all over the book of Psalms. For example, Psalm 19, verse 1, 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, you can just look around and learn a little something about the glory of God. We see it in the prophets when Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God and falls to his knees in the presence of God's glory. He's so moved by the glory and holiness of God that he doesn't feel he belongs. He feels like he's doomed as a sinner in this presence of God. But then an angel cleanses Isaiah's lips and assures him that he's welcome there, that his sin has been atoned for. The prophets Daniel and Ezekiel have similar experiences, being utterly overwhelmed by the glory of God. And last but not least, you see the book of Revelation. God's glory seen in that book, the imagery that John uses, is breathtaking. We have accounts all over the pages of the Bible concerning God's glory. Words written down on paper that only begin to help us grasp the enormity and the majesty of God's fame and renown. But what else should we know about God's glory? What did the reformers emphasize? And what should we keep in mind when we talk about God's glory? The way we so often throw it around in churches. So let's open to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 31. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you need one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for who you are. At some level, none of us is worthy of speaking of your glory. Who do we think we are to to speak of your glory? And yet, like Isaiah, when we come to this topic of your glory, when we fall down and think, man, we are not worthy of even having this conversation You welcome us. You've given us your word because you want us to know something about your glory. And so, Father, I pray that we would read it with a great sense of awe and a great sense of humility. Thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your son died on the cross for our sins as we celebrate at communion. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who marks us and sets us apart as your people, your holy people. So, Father, be with us this morning as we worship you, as we read your word, as we do the things that you call us to do, as we live as the people that you call us to be. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world out of nothing simply by speaking. He brings order to chaos. He brings form and purpose to what was once formless and void. He forms the world, but then he fills the world. He fills it with vegetation and animals and the crown jewel of his creation, people. But then after he creates all this stuff, God steps back, examines his work, and labels it good. We see that in Genesis 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, 
and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God looks at what he's done and says it is very good. And it's so good, in fact, that God takes time to rest. It's not like he was tired. It's God we're talking about. But he rests for a moment to revel in what he has done. He rests for a moment to bask in what he has done. Because what he has done is nothing short of glorious. But then we get to chapter 3. Through Adam and Eve's sin, everything once so good, so glorious, is tainted and corrupted. It's subject to the curse that God pronounces. You could say that in Genesis 3, mankind and even creation itself falls from glory. I don't think it's a coincidence that the serpent's final and ultimately successful tactic to tempt Adam and Eve was to appeal to their glory. Satan suggested that God was unfairly hogging all the glory for himself and that Adam and Eve deserved a piece of the pie. And when Adam and Eve eat that fruit and their desire to bring themselves up to the same level of glory as God, when they do that, they commit the ultimate act of mutiny. They attempt to rob God of what is rightfully his. What is his alone? And they unleash a ripple effect of destruction. We see it in the chapters following. In Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. Why does he do it? Because they both offer sacrifices. But only Abel's is accepted. Perhaps Cain feels as though Abel gets glory that is rightfully his. Perhaps he feels it's unfair that he didn't get any glory at all. In Genesis chapters 5 through 10, we see corruption increasing in creation. Sinful man has become such an offense to God's glory that he sends a flood to wipe the slate clean. He saves only one family belonging to Noah, and they're the only family that seems interested in glorifying God at all. And then we get to Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel. We read in Genesis 11, verse 4, the people saying, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. You hear that? Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Like Adam and Eve before them, the people at Babel are concerned with their glory above all else, making a name for themselves. And yet again, God has to step in and restrain them from causing even more destruction. But truthfully, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We're not that different from Adam and Eve. We're not that different from Cain. We're not that different from the architects of Babel. We're more obsessed with glory than we might even realize. I mean, think about it. 
We like receiving glory, don't we? Maybe you've been given some kind of award or accolade or recognition. You might try to appear humble and unaffected by it, but deep down you could find yourself saying, you know, yeah, I deserve this. Or maybe on the opposite side of the coin, you've done a school project or a work project with a group of people. You're the one who carried all the weight while other people were lazy. But those people got the same grade you did. They got just as much glory as you did. And deep down, you're angry because those slackers are taking the glory that is rightfully yours. We like receiving glory. But then on top of that, we protect our glory when we get it. What if you've worked hard to get where you are? You're wealthy, successful, respected. But then all of a sudden, you make a mistake that could make it all come crumbling down. Someone finds a skeleton in your closet that could expose you as a fraud or a cheater. You could lose that wealth. You could lose that success. You could lose that reputation. And in that moment, you'd consider doing just about anything to save face. You'd do just about anything to preserve and protect the hard-earned glory that you've purchased with your own blood, sweat, and tears. We like receiving glory. And when our glory is threatened, we protect it. Or on top of that, we may even attempt to steal glory. If you ever want to visit the Mecca of human glory, go to LinkedIn.com. LinkedIn, if you don't know this, is a networking site for people in every profession you can imagine. It's a venue to share your professional resume with the world. I recently saw the LinkedIn page belonging to someone I've worked with before. And on that resume, on that page, they claimed credit for accomplishments that they really had nothing to do with and exaggerated the accomplishments that they actually could claim. The point is that we love glory. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make ourselves look good, even if we have to lie or steal or exaggerate to do it. But while sinners like us may like glory, the truth is that only God deserves it. Our purpose is to glorify him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that glorifying God is man's chief end. In the words of Edward Lay, God alone is infinitely worthy to be praised, admired, and loved of all. In other words, only he is infinitely worthy of glory. And so if that's true, it's not only foolish and arrogant for us to try and claim glory for ourselves. It's an injustice. If God alone is worthy of eternal glory, then any attempt to rob him of that glory is an act of treason against our creator. There are passages in scripture that show us the dangers of taking God's glory lightly or taking God's glory for ourselves. In Leviticus chapter 10, the sons of Aaron offer unauthorized fire at the altar of God. 
They are very lackadaisical about God's glory. And they're consumed by that fire and killed. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar gets a little too full of himself. And so God humbles him, humiliates him, that he would glorify God instead. In Acts chapter 12, some people start shouting that Herod is a god, that he's worthy of glory. And Herod doesn't exactly correct them. And Acts chapter 12 tells us that he's struck down and eaten by worms. What we see in those passages is a God who is not tame. We see a God who is very, very concerned with his glory. And a God who does not take it lightly when we try to steal his glory for ourselves. In Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We ascribe glory to God, not as a favor for him, not in a nice gesture to try and make him look good. According to Psalm 29, we glorify God because glory is due him. In other words, it would be wrong for us to not glorify him. And if we glorify anything beside him, we fail to live up to our purpose. We fail to live up to the chief end of mankind, what we were created for. Now, of course, you hear all this talk of God's glory. You see passages like these. And you probably feel similar to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. You think, oh my goodness, who am I to even talk about these things? Who am I to dare come into the presence of the glory of God? How could I ever match up to that glory? Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. I am doomed. This talk of God's glory can be intimidating and even frightening. But there is good news. And more specifically, the good news. The good news that God is redeeming this not-so-glorious world and redeeming glory-hungry sinners like us. And even more amazingly, he's doing it through some less-than-glorious means, specifically the cross of Christ. In the Gospel of John, right before Jesus is crucified, he starts saying some interesting things. John chapter 12, starting in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. In some way, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Hard for the disciples to wrap their minds around. Jesus seems to think that somehow him dying on the cross is going to glorify God. He says again in John chapter 13, verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In some weird way, this terrible, brutal, shameful cross 
is the means that God uses to glorify himself. It's the means that God uses to glorify his son, Jesus Christ. And it's the means that God uses to bring fallen, unglorious sinners like us back into his glorious presence once and for all. In the book of Exodus, Moses is the one person who gets consistently closest to seeing God's glory in all of its fullness. Moses is the one who got that message at the burning bush. He's the one who got to speak with God on top of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 34, every time Moses leaves God's presence, he has to put a veil over his face. That way, the light of God's glory wouldn't scare all the other Israelites away. There's even a passage in Exodus 33 where Moses directly asks God to allow him to see his glory. And Moses only gets a preview. But Paul picks up on this story in 2 Corinthians, a book that regularly speaks about God's glory, seen through none other than Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul argues that the glory of the new covenant which we believers in Jesus know firsthand, far outweighs the glory of the covenant in Moses' day. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. By looking at none other than Jesus Christ, the veil separating us from truly seeing the glory of God, that veil is removed. Because we see the very glory of God when we look in the face of the one who is crucified for us. Now, what are the ramifications of this? Well, there are several. Number one, right now, at this very moment, if you are a believer in Christ, you are an ambassador of God's glory. People glorify things all the time that aren't actually glorious. At the time, the Titanic was a glorious achievement of engineering and creativity and ingenuity. It was filled with glorious people going on a glorious journey. But it sank. We don't seem to learn the lesson. Whenever something new comes along, we glorify that next feat, that next accomplishment of mankind, even though deep down we know that eventually... Something else will surpass it. That something else will outdo it in glory. And that thing won't really be worthy of glory anymore. It'll just be outdated. We long to see something. Or better yet, we long to see someone who's actually worthy of glory. 
And as believers in Christ, we already have. And so our job is to point people's eyes in the right direction. Point people who are starving for something worthy of glory and encourage them to look at none other than Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors of God's glory at this very moment. But on top of that, we are partakers of God's glory. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, we still struggle with sin, of course. Even after coming to faith in Christ, we often look less than glorious. But one day we will be fully glorified when Christ returns, or when we die, whichever comes first. We will be freed from sin once and for all, perfectly spotless, perfectly holy, reflecting the glory of God, like from the very beginning. We look forward to that day, but we're also partakers of God's glory at this very moment. And then finally, one day we look forward to being in God's glorious presence for eternity. We mentioned the book of Revelation, all that imagery that John uses to try and communicate this glory of God that he sees. One good piece of imagery is in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 10. John says, He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He goes on in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We look forward to living in that place. We look forward to the once for all final reversal of that curse of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve ushered in our fall from glory, but Christ brings us back to a state of glory in eternity with God. We look forward to the day when we don't need the sun and we don't need the moon. Because God's glory is so overwhelming. It gives us light. It is how we see where we're going. His light shows us where to walk. We look forward to that day of being in God's glory in eternity. So sola deo gloria is the natural conclusion of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. After all, if we really are saved by faith alone and not works, and if we really do owe everything good we have to God's grace alone, and if Christ alone really is our sufficient Savior, and if Scripture alone really is our only perfect authority, you put it all together, then of course, 
all the glory belongs to God alone. So ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Exit the rat race of trying to acquire glory for yourself. And quit the charade of glorifying things that you know don't really deserve it. Embrace the glory that God has so generously poured out through his son, Jesus Christ. Glorifying him is what you were created for. It is your chief end. So may we all live for the glory of God alone, rather than our glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, these passages that we read that tell us something about your glory. As beautiful and as poetic as some of these passages can be, especially the passages in the prophets and the passages in Revelation describing your glory, as beautiful as those passages are, they only give us a preview, a glimpse of what your glory is actually like. So, Father, I pray that those passages would move us, that they would give us a deeper longing for your glory above any other type of fake glory that we might see in this world. And, Father, thank you that you've given Christ that we might be returned, reconciled to a state of glory, returned to your presence, living in your glory forever. The way that Christ accomplished our salvation was not really glorious by the world's standards. It was bloody, and it was brutal, and it was harsh. And Father, thank you that Christ did that for us. Thank you that he was faithful to the calling that you gave him, that he was faithful to your word, that he was the spotless lamb, the sufficient sacrifice that could cover our sins. We love you, we praise you, we give you all the glory, and we thank you that you are so generous with glory for us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.